0: And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. We read that far from God's word. The whole gospel of Luke, start to finish, the gospel of Luke has only 1,113 verses. I say only because it covers a lot of Information. It covers the birth, life, preaching, miracles, trial, crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, appearances, and ascension of Jesus in just over a thousand verses. These many events uh, leading up to the first Christmas, some of us have been studying these recent weeks, were told in just 80 verses in the first chapter. Now, when it comes to the actual birth of Jesus, it's told in just seven verses. The birth of Jesus Christ, just seven verses. Of all written words, anywhere, ever, what a rare and precious diamond of storytelling are these seven verses. So familiar to us from Christmas readings, cantatas, Christmas cards, that sometimes we just pass over them and turn our minds off almost. There's a lot of information in these seven verses. First, our author is a medical doctor named Luke. It's clear that before writing these words, Luke had interviewed the young mother, Mary, about what had happened to her. Mary had lived through so many experiences that she could have only told some of her experiences to Dr. Luke, the most important. And then uh, Luke's whole book was necessarily so brief, he had so many other things to write about the Lord Jesus that he could only write a summary and highlights about his birth. So we ask ourselves of these seven verses, why did Luke choose to relate the birth of Jesus in this way with these exact words? The answer is Luke had a theme. And the theme of this passage is the main point of this message on your handout there. The gift of Jesus is that our Savior is humble. That's the theme. The humility of Jesus. We'll see that the king of kings came under the the decrees of a lesser king. And secondly, that the son of David allowed his royalty to be ignored. And third, that the Christ child allowed his body to be placed in a trough. So first, the king of kings came under the decrees of a lesser king. We're so familiar with these words from Christmas programs. Luke begins with words that feel very familiar to us. In those days, a decree went out from... I think it even shows up in a Snoopy program. Uh, You know, one of those specials. With masterful economy of words, Luke is taking us back and setting the scene. Absorb the words now with me. Study these words. He's taking us back to set the scene. The scene in those days was a decree. A official governmental decision that impacted our story so significantly that even though it's such a short story... Luke starts off with this decree. He says, there was a decree, you need to know. The decree that impacted our story. And the very next phrase tells us a lot. The phrase, from Caesar. Aha. Uh-huh. See, now that reminds us of a whole sorts of, a lot of things, all sorts of things. There was one world superpower arising out of Rome. And Caesar's, from there, went out and ruled the world together with the senators back in Rome, and a series of states in the boot of Italy that in those days they called provinces. And to specify, not just in the Roman Empire, but within the Roman Empire, we're told next that it was Augustus that was the name of the Caesar who was in the pow- on power in the Roman Empire on the day when Jesus was born. So under the providence of God, of course, it was because of the decree of this man named Augustus that was the name of the Caesar who was in power on the day when Jesus was born. So the, the man named Augustus issued a decree uh, that impacted the birth of the Son of God into the world so that it took place exactly in the location that it took place, partly because of this decree. A decree from the mighty King Augustus had an impact on our little baby. And so yes, our story began with an action of a Roman emperor To call for a registering of all people. Yawn, yawn, right? Registering of all people. That's the part where people go half asleep in a Christmas cantata. What today we call a census. Not very exciting information. A census is to be taken, right? However, what we know is that there was this backstory. There was a prequel. The ancient prophet Micah had written in chapter 5, verse 2, that the ruler over Israel would be born in... Bethlehem. And so with that prequel in mind that the ruler to come, the one whom God was sending would need to be born in Bethlehem, we now collate what we know so far. We know quite a bit in just a few words. We know that the very first hint of the worldwide significance of this birth is here in chapter 2, verse 1, the occasion of a Roman census that God used to bring Joseph and Mary into the city of Bethlehem at just the right time for the birth to happen there. And since the first verse has made all this clear, we could now ask, what's gained by verse 2? Why not just skip verse 2? What's the value of verse 2 being included? Well, it seems that our author wanted to provide a historical point of reference for researchers. If anyone doubts this or wants to verify this, researchers would be able to find the records on an external source, the governmental source, to confirm the facts that Luke is now listing and to create timelines if timelines is what they'd like to create in order to validate the accuracy of these statements. That's why verse 2 is included. Remember how Luke had written chapter 1, verse 4, that he wanted his audience to, quote, have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught, end quote. This teaching that the Lord Jesus has been born in Bethlehem is publicly verifiable according to verse 2 in the records of government leaders. So what? Well, there's a growing sense as you read these words that there's a coming event that Luke is about to present to his readers of such monumental significance that all of these facts become vastly important. An event is about to be reported here by Luke that could be measured now by that moment when the first registration took place when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Let the record stipulate. May the truth of the case be confirmed. May the researchers and the historians and the government record specialists all agree that yes, that's where and when this birth took place. Great. And next, verse 3 tells us that each person went to his own hometown to register. Joseph and Mary were no exception to this governmental registering. And to read about Joseph and Mary here, the way that the story is presented, we don't seem to be told outright that one of history's greatest kings was about to be born. But we do get an inkling about a coming person more significant than the census that would place the whereabouts and timing of his birth. We are getting an inkling of a coming one who's more significant than the entire governorship of Quirinius of Syria. Do you know anything else about Quirinius of Syria? We are beginning to sense that this coming king has a greater significance than Caesar Augustus and than the entire Roman Empire. Someone's coming who will be placed and located by those external factors. But later... After this one has been born, and after he has lived and performed his life, he will dwarf the rest of all those exterior factors, and they will be measured by this greater king. That's exactly his theme. Do you see? This is the first point of this sermon. The king of kings came under the decrees of a lesser king. Let me try to say it to you a different way. Think of it this way. The coming new year is us entering 2024, right? It's not the year 2024 A.Q. after Quirinius. And it's not the the new year 2024 A.A. after Augustus. It's the coming new year 2024 A.D., which is Latin for Anno Domino, year of our Lord 2024. That's how we measure time. Time. It's not by Quirinius, and it's not by the Roman Empire. It's by Jesus. At the time of his writing, the readers needed Luke to place and to locate the birth of Jesus by the decree of this lesser king. But one day, as we all watch and hear, there will be a decree issued by this baby, become king, Jesus Christ, the true king overall. And by that decree... One will appear before him named Augustus, Caesar of Rome. And another will appear before him named Quirinius, former governor of Syria. And they will stand before him, the one who was born under their watch. And they will give account to him. That's what Luke wants us to understand as he presents this to us. He was humbling himself to be born under the impact of their decrees. Yet it was he this king jesus who underwent humiliation to be carried by the woman who from nazareth to bethlehem would travel great with child because caesar augustus decided that now's the time that he would issue a decree that all the world should be registered you haven't seen all the world registered until jesus summons all the world to be registered before him Yet he humbled himself that this issue, decree, from this lesser king would have an impact on where he would be born. Yes, it would even have the impact of fulfilling the word of God, that he would be born exactly in Bethlehem. This temporary power of Caesar over Christ Jesus, unborn, reminds us of what happened much later in Jesus' life. Thirty years later, when Pilate, the Roman governor, would interview Jesus, and Pilate would say in John 18, You are a king then. And Jesus answered, You are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born. And for this I came into the world. To testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Continuing in John 19, 9, Pilate interviewed Jesus further. Where do you come from? But Jesus gave to Pilate no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. John 19, 11. The same was true of Caesar when Jesus was yet unborn. You would have no power over Jesus, the unborn. Where he would be born? If it were not given to you from above. The location of Jesus' birth, seemingly impacted by the decree, overseen by the greater decree of the greater king. So what's the point? Jesus submitted himself under that whole process of the lesser king because that was the command from God the Father. The king of kings came under the decree of a lesser king. First point. We move to our second point. The son of David allowed his royalty to be ignored. Now we notice what verse 4 tells us. He belonged to the line of David. The great king David was the best of the ancient kings of Israel. What should have happened? was that all Judea and all the Roman world should have bowed before this King Jesus in the manger. Caesar Augustus should have given up his palace for Jesus. Quirinius should have bowed to the ground and stayed there before the baby Jesus. Instead, the coming of Jesus was nearly hidden, like a non-event. Verse 5 tells us that Joseph went there to register with Mary, who carried the rightful heir to the throne of David, no less. Joseph went up to register his son, first born in his house, his savior, and his king. And the taking of the census meant great upheaval in those days. Everyone needed to go back to their hometown, the place where they were born, in order to register for this census It's how they conducted it. Joseph would return to Bethlehem, known as David's city. King David grew up there as a boy, often visited Bethlehem. In fact, in our next chapter, Luke chapter 3, at the end, our author, who wrote so briefly, found it important enough to include a genealogical list that David had a son, and David's son had a son, and so on, and so on. And the purpose of the genealogy in chapter 3 of Luke was to show that whoever was the firstborn son in each generation down from David would then be the inheritor of the rights to the title son of David. The point of the author is to show that whoever held that title at the time of the birth of Jesus was a man named Joseph. So the inescapable consequence was that the firstborn son in that man's house, in Joseph's household, would be the only person possible to inherit that great title of the firstborn in Joseph's house, son of David. So this author is going into great detail in chapter 2 and in chapter 3 to have us know that this was the case. Legally, it was the firstborn son within Joseph's household, had the title son of David, but biologically, he was not the son of Joseph. The Holy Spirit had overshadowed the womb of the Virgin Mary, and he was truly biologically the child of Mary and the son of God. Luke is going into great detail to have us know exactly the situation with Jesus Christ and his relationship to Joseph, the title son of David, whose son was this baby to be born, the one rightfully to hold, the title son of David, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven. These are holy things that God is telling us about through Luke in a story that now contains a good number of kings, we're reminded that the former mighty King David had a great-great-grandson yet unborn whose mother was now arriving into Bethlehem in order for him to be born there. And since his mother was great with child and traveling, perhaps they were slow in their movements. And they arrived in a bustling town of Bethlehem After others had arrived to be registered, who had also sought lodging, and there was no room left by the time this young pregnant family arrived. This king himself arriving to Bethlehem in the womb of his mother, no room for the king, no room for his parents in Bethlehem's inn or hotel. Freeze frame there. What's the point? what's the lesson of luke it's the same as point 1 it's the same as the main theme there's a theme in these seven verses a humbling what an astounding humbling for the king every leader would present a humble beginning if he had such a one we te- we learn about them in their campaigns this is the true leader And there's good reason why the nativity scene brings such fascination because it is the leader who had such humility, a humble launch, beginning. He willingly entered a life of poverty and rejection and weakness in order to be our savior. The stooping down of the very God in the event of Christmas is truly staggering in its proportions and lasting in its impact on the world and you and me. Our God humbled himself. That's why the world never tires of contemplating Christmas. It's royalty being ignored. It's a powerful story. It's powerful truth. It's, it's part of the gift. The gift of Jesus, our Savior, is humble. Brings us to our third point, verses 6 and 7. The Christ child allowed his body to be placed in all places in a trough, a feeding trough, a place where you put cornmeal for the cattle pastor born 800 years ago named Bonaventure wrote that at Christmas we should consider quote, this humble God lying in a manger. Just think of it this way, what would be different if this birth were the birth of a different king that day? What announcements, what fanfare, what preparations would have been done if the child to be born was instead the son of Quirinius or the son of Caesar Augustus? What if it were that royal child to be born? What then announcements would have been made? What sort of clothing? What sort of surroundings? What sort of persons would have taken note? What sort of countries would have sent tribute? And in contrast, what was done for the Son of God that night? This is why we say we realize more than ordinary abasement, more than ordinary dishonor, afforded to the Christ child at his royal birth and later Jesus himself as an adult in his own preaching ministry reflected on this humble birth status that continued as a humble status throughout his earthly life when he said this profoundly in Luke 9:58 foxes have holes birds of the air have nests but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head Luke 9:58 so that night in that trough where beasts would come and feed, now was placed the very bread of heaven so that we sinful beasts might feed on him and live. John 6, Jesus said as much, the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. And having fed on Christ by faith, we live Later, of course, this same Christ in the same body would die, would rise, would ascend in the self-same body, would send his Holy Spirit upon us, would promise to come again in that body, resurrected, glorified, exalted, so that we have a place that he's now preserving for us and preparing for us, in John 14, too, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. I am the way. So what have we seen? The gift of Jesus is that our Savior is humble. The King of kings came under the decrees of lesser kings. The Son of David allowed himself to be ignored, and the Christ child allowed his body to be placed in a trough as a dress rehearsal for being placed on a cross, being placed in a tomb. So the concluding lessons to us of Christmas are the same lessons of the Christian story, the same lessons of the entirety of the Gospel of Luke, the same lessons of the cross and the empty tomb. The lesson of Christmas is the lesson of the Christian. It's all about the attitude of Christ. The humble attitude of Christ, therefore the humble attitude of every Christian. And since the Christ child in the kingdom had nothing but a manger, the son of man, and as an adult, no place to lay his head, then the kingdom of God is a calling to us to remain humble as we walk through this world. How do we do that? We feed on Christ. As taught by Jesus, we consider others better than ourselves. Our author Luke has connected for us the birth of Jesus with his death and resurrection. It's always connected. The Christmas story, every Christmas flower, every Christmas light, every Christmas cantata is connected because it's why he came. The name Jesus means he will save his people from their sins. So Luke here has connected the birth. Death and resurrection, that Jesus was humbled in his birth, humbled further in his death, and gives us the gift of humility in his resurrection power. That's Christian living, to be humble. That's the Christmas, Christmas gift, to be humble. Humble people are content with what God gives them. Humble people are content with what we get for Christmas <laughs> and what we get for our whole lives. We don't compare our lives to others. We're content with what God gives. We're content, and that's an understatement, because we get eternal life in him. What a gift. Hope and peace and love all come and flow through Christ. Bethlehem, in a sense, became the new Eden. Became the new Garden of Eden. Because the birth of Jesus opened paradise and closeness to God there. Christ humbled himself so that we could become more perfect humans. was a perfect human? Only Jesus. But he calls us to move in that direction, and it includes humbling ourselves for the benefit of others. God wraps us not in royal purple or pride of our place, but he wraps us in swaddling cloths, as it were, in servant's clothing, as it were. A servant's attitude is the only proper way to follow this Savior who came in this way. We don't demand all sorts of things in pride. Acknowledge my birth, he could have said. But in humility, we're content with closeness for God. All I want for Christmas is to be near God. Psalm 73, 28, As for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge. Jesus humbled himself. He allowed his name to be enrolled in the Roman records under Caesar Augustus so that your name can be enrolled in the Lamb's book of life. He allowed his royalty to be ignored, that you would be welcomed as a child of God at the gates of splendor, be adopted as a child of God. He allowed himself to be turned away from the Bethlehem Inn so that you could have many mansions in heaven and a reserved seat at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Mary would sing in Luke 1.46: My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. And she would sing about her son further in Luke one fifty one, He has shown strength with his arm, He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus.